Welcome to Grace Church, we're a Christ-centered community intent on proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and sacrificially serving Jesus. If you're visiting, if you're new, welcome. If you're online this morning, uh, welcome as well. And if you would, please stand with us. We're going to open this morning with Psalm 18, the first three verses of Psalm 18. David writes, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. And Father, you are our rock, our fortress, our strength, our deliverer. You are the place that we hide ourselves in when we are exhausted and tired and run down. And so Lord, we ask that you would help us this morning. We ask that you would help our hearts to sing praise to you and to really mean it, to really feel it, to really worship you as we ought. We love you, our Lord, our strength, our rock, and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. 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 Let's sing together this morning.
standing and turn to James chapter 4. Our scripture reading this morning is James 4, the first 10 verses. God's perfect word says in James chapter 4, starting in verse 1 here. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You may be seated. We're going to pray uh, this morning together, and we have... uh, a blessing, our, our kind of missionary focus today, we get to pray for someone who's actually here. Um, Bethany's been playing the piano, but if you want to come up, Bethany, we're going to pray for her. She is leaving on November 8th, so really soon, um, and she's going for three months to Pretoria, South Africa, to work with the baby home. Some of you have been there. Some of you um, know that ministry that we partner with there, and so I want to pray for Bethany as she heads out and also just for our time uh, this morning together. So let's pray. Father, we come before you because of Jesus and what he has done. Nothing special about us, but because you acted when we were running away from you and you opened our eyes, you rescued us, you died for us, you paid for our sins, you cleansed us, you give us righteousness, you promised that you'll bring us home and bring us to eternal joy with you. We love you, Lord. We love you for all of who you are, your, your grace, your mercy, your kindness, your righteousness your patience, your love. You are infinitely interesting and exciting. You are the source of all joy, and so we worship you this morning. Please draw us nearer to yourself today. Please forgive us for how our hearts wander and turn inward on ourselves and what we want, and we run the opposite direction of you and try to find joy in everything else. So this morning, turn us back towards you. Fill our hearts with love both for you, love for your people, love for the lost world around us. Lord, we need the power of your spirit to do a work in our hearts this morning. So please do that as James preaches from your word. And Lord, bless your church around the world. Bless Bethany as she partners up with the church in Pretoria. Bless her as um, she serves with the baby home. Give her a time where she personally is encouraged and strengthened and her eyes are open to new things about you and about your world that she's never seen or thought of before and deepen her love for you. Deepen her love for your word and for your church. May the church there be encouraged and strengthened by her time, Lord. Um, May blessing abound both to her and to the church there, to your people around the world, Lord. 
and make us faithful this week to be quick to share the gospel, to live in a way that matches up with your truth, Lord. We want to be lights wherever you would send us, but we need your help. So please strengthen us, encourage us this morning, and prepare us for this week. We love you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please stand again as we sing.
Father, thank you that you are kind and good and sovereign, and in the most difficult times of life, we can come to you and trust in your everlasting love and cling to your unfailing grace. So Lord, we praise you for that. For those of us who are hurting this morning, we pray that you would minister to us by your spirit, through your word, with your grace, to comfort us with the love of Christ. Would you open our hearts to receive your word right now? Would you humble us under your mighty hand so at the right time you would lift us up? Lord, we pray that you would have uh, your way in our hearts and that Christ would receive honor and praise and glory this morning. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Good morning, Grace Church. It's good to be here together this morning. Start off, I've got a question for you this morning. Maybe you, like me, have found yourself recently longing for the good old days. There's wars right now. Hamas, Israel, Russia, Ukraine. We don't know where the next one's going to break out. Uh, we don't know if it's going to involve us. It feels like if you're a student of history, it feels like, like it could be like the times before World War I or World War II where something sparked the whole world spinning out of order and into war. Not only are there wars, there are cultural wars. Things that used to be certain are now uncertain. A man can be a woman. Saving the environment is more important than saving human life. There's political confusion and upheaval. There's inflation through the roof. Things cost a whole lot more. Not to mention social media and all the wonderful effects of the internet. This makes us long for the good old days. We see this, I think, even in... I think I could show you evidence that this is present in our culture as well. Uh, I mean, think about the movie Top Gun Maverick. Why was it so popular? It was popular because it felt like the 80s. Tom Cruise, though he's 80, still looked like he did back in the 80s. Like it, we long for the good old days. The bad guy was bad, the good guy was good, and it seemed clear. Many TV shows, movies, games, they're all wrapping themselves in the dress of the 80s and Going back in time, we're putting aside skinny jeans for parachute pants. I'm a child of the 80s, and so these things are close to my heart. Turned 40 this year, and, and uh, I remember times when you had to actually know somebody's phone number, and you had to type it in, and you could only get a hold of them if they were at home. Like, they had to be in a single place in order to get that call. And, like, think how freeing that would be. Like, you'd only, you could only be reached... And demands could only be made of you if you were at home and you answered that phone call. But now we have something that, that we carry in our pocket that makes, makes demands ever-present. So we long for the good old days. And the good old days when you had to take a picture and deal with the results of it, with real film. I mean, you couldn't take 300 and then switch this kid's head to that kid's head and, and make the one smiling, pick it out of, the, pick it out of that and do the magic eraser thing and, and put that guy out of the picture. No, you had lots of awkward family photos. But things were real. Like, we liked that. I, I think we, we long for that. You had to drive around, and when you did, you had to know the directions. You didn't have something calling out, go right, go left, or it might have been your, your, your brother or someone in a backseat. Drivers were real back then. They would call it out, and you'd have to follow their directions. You'd have to know what a map was. Now my kids look at it like it's this piece of history, and it's got great interest in that way. But we long for the good old days. The world today seems uncertain. In general, there's 
all these depressing things that, that just seem fake. We don't know what's real, and there's just not a lot of hope. So we long for the good old days. Things seemed simpler back then. Things seemed a little more under control. And so how do we combine this with what we know about a sovereign God? Then we ask a question like, how is God at work in a world filled with rivalry, conflict, war, fake news, things that are, are, are deceptions? How can anyone live with certainty and confidence? The world seems more out of control and sin seems more in control than ever. We want to know, we want to have hope that things will turn out all right. We want to know that things will turn out all right with our kids. We want to know that things will turn out all right with our finances. Things are going to turn out all right with that situation at work. There's a lot of evil, and we, we sometimes find ourselves asking, where is the good? I think it's helpful, and will be a helpful reminder today, to go back to the beginning of strife and war. The issue in the world, war, conflict, rejection of God, man seeking after his own, we find these same problems at the dawn of history. And so Genesis, we'll go back to Genesis today, the book of Genesis lays out the beginnings. It gives the Israelites their history and the history of the world. They were wandering around in the wilderness and they needed the story of the beginning of all things to know that God was at work, God was in control. They would have, and we know, they were actually longing for the good old days of slavery in Egypt. They had a lot of questions. How, where, where is this new home going to be? Are we going to eternally be in the desert? How are we going to enter the promised land? What is this stuff we're eating? Literally, the name manna means what is it? They had a lot of questions. But as we look at the stories of Genesis, God points us to our hope. And the book of Genesis really is one story. And today we're going to take two scenes from it. And in some ways, this has been on my mind because uh, we're teaching kids on Friday mornings from 4th to 12th grade at Grace Orange Academy to look at the, the books of the scripture as a whole and understand how they fit together. And so we're, we're helping them identify all these little stories are, are pieces in a bigger story. And it's important that we fit these pieces together and understand the Old Testament and and we understand it not because it's, just, it's, it's not just a simple record of history. It's recorded theology. It's God revealing himself to us. Because the stories are epic and amazing, sometimes we get caught up in the characters like Adam and Eve. We think about what it was like to be in the garden. Noah building an ark. Abraham, Jacob, Joseph. David killing Goliath. Samson knocking down the pillars. We get caught up in, in the characters in the story and miss out sometimes that it's actually about God. It's him revealing himself to us. Other times we're tempted to point it at ourselves and we're tempted to think the story is about us. We're tempted to put ourselves in the middle of it and think, what can I get out of this for me? Um, the story, is, it's not about just the characters in it. It's not about us, though it applies and gives us lots of wisdom. It's about our, our God. It's about God by him, through him, and to him for his glory. It's a story of his glory. And God assures his people that he is the one in control and at work in Genesis. And as we get to Genesis chapter 4, the, the setting is pretty well known. We know Genesis 1, God created all things. We know Genesis 2, man, woman, in the garden, walking with God. 
We know Genesis 3 and brings the conflict. Man made to worship God and follow his authority follows the serpent and flips things upside down so that he worships created things. He grasps to be deity himself, to be like God. And with the fall, we find the beginning of our uncertainty. And it stems from our separation from God. Could sinful man be united, reconciled to his creator again? Is Eden lost forever? But God spoke a promise in Genesis 3. And the promise is in Genesis 3.15. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He's talking about offspring here, the offspring and, and pointing it at Satan and the serpent and then pointing to a promise, a promise of an offspring from the woman that will crush the serpent's head. This offspring is the word Sarah. It's used 59 times in Genesis. And this, along with the genealogies, is actually what connects the stories together. It gives them structure and reveals to us why they were written. We're looking for the offspring, the promised seed, the one to come and crush the certain the serpent, those genealogies would not have been skipped over by the Israelites, nor simply used for possible baby names. I'm guilty. I've done that. There's not a lot of great ones in there that are usable today. And we go different directions with our baby names. So, But these genealogies, this search for the offspring, points to the point of the story. How is God going to fulfill his promise to mankind through the seed, and who is the offspring? This is the question that we ask when reading Genesis. And the horrible story in Genesis 3 gets even worse in Genesis 4. By the time we get to Genesis 4, Adam and Eve, they're longing for the good old days. They are. And think, they, more than anybody else in history, carried a weight with them because they knew what it was like to be in the garden with God. Imagine everything else tainted, it, not, just, not just with a bad aftertaste, but it's poisoned because everything now is going to die. And Adam and Eve knew what life was like, knew what it was like to be with God. They were definitely longing for the good old days. And they're probably the only ones throughout all history that could truly long for the good old days. We're going to read in Genesis 4, starting in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Eve knows the promise. We see in verse 1, and longs for the good old days, and here appears to have hope that the first son, that he being born, is a part of the promise. Cain is the first human not to be directly created by God's hand. He's the first seed the first offspring. Hope lives. There's a son from the Lord. Verse 2 goes on, and again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel in his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, 
Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will, not, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Verse 8, things are still going downhill. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. If we see this as a story simply for moral application, it's simple. We can end right here. Cain is bad. Don't kill your brother. And that's actually a good start. Go away believing that today. Cain is bad. Don't kill your brother. Right? We're given a context, though, that reveals something greater. There's a conflict between Cain and Abel, and it's a result of a conflict between Cain and God. Cain's worship is not accepted. And this makes us ask other questions. I mean, just thinking of the context. How do they know what to do? How do they know to bring offerings? We don't have any recorded instructions for sacrifice at this point, but here we find it's a practice that occurred, and as it says in the passage here, in the course of time. This was something that was going on already. We can surmise that Adam and Eve, who had walked with God, had instruction from God. God had made them clothes of skin, implying there was an animal killed. They were not directionless in this new state. God doesn't leave them directionless. They knew God and his authority. They knew they were made to worship. They knew the God whom they were made to worship and how worship was to be done. Cain's sacrifice was not accepted. Abel's was. Hebrews 11, verse 4, sheds a little more light on this as well. It says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abel had faith. Cain demonstrates with his life and actions and his offering, he did not have faith. Faith was key from the very beginning. We find it here. Your actions and your offerings must be done in faith. No one can please God without faith. It's clear here that worship, which is meant to show worship, worship which is meant to show reverence to God, right? the very act of worship is coming to please the one to whom you're worshiping. But God doesn't accept false worship or simply good intentions. In our time, people shop around for a worship experience. They look for something that pleases themselves. But here, at the very beginning, we're warned not to follow the way of Cain. We're warned not to come to worship for what it does for us, but we're, 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 we're to come to the Lord on his terms in faith. Worship is about God not about us. Cain had a worship issue. He was upset. But we even see, as we see faith here in the beginning, we also see God's grace present. God is gracious. Even in this scene, he comes to Cain and counsels him, do well. He warns of sin's desire for him. Cain was mercifully counseled directly by the Lord to run from sin and do well. But it's here that we see his worship problem the effects of the fall do not just cause a separation from God, but also from fellow man. 
And in verse 8, again, it says, Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. This is the very first man that was born. First natural birth. First one born into a sin nature. And what do we see immediately? It's, it's devastating, the effects of the fall. It goes straight to murder. It doesn't take time to build up to the place where, oh, now we're, now we're to the level of murder. No. Very first guy. Very first one. Mankind will be dealing with the effects of the fall for the rest of history. Murder, jealousy, strife, wars. Didn't take generations to happen. Cain, the very first, was a picture of depravity against God and against man. And why? We see it's, it's connected to his worship, his separation from God. Adam had sinned and his sin is passed on so that man will worship created things and be completely corrupt as Romans 1 teaches us. This is from the start. If we don't rightly worship God, sin will, ha- will impact all of our relationships. We reject God and we reject man. What is the source of conflict? Rejection of God, worship of self. Cain doesn't humble himself under God's instructions, but in pride and jealousy murders his brother. He has the chance to repent and turn to God, but instead he murders Abel. And in verse 9, it goes on, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Again, this is not a quotable phrase. Don't use that one. And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Remember, Genesis 3 has us looking for the promised seed. And what we see here is Cain is not him. And we also know by fact that Abel is not him as well. We have the murderer and the murdered. If this is the arc of the story of history, we're in trouble. There's sin and there's a curse. In chapter 4, there's sin and there's one who is cursed. Cain is cursed. His green thumb is taken away from him. He's not one who lives by faith in his rejection of God. It's clear in his life, in his offering, and in his murder. But even here, as we see faith present, as we see God's grace present, we also see God's mercy present in this story. Cain is preserved. The mark of Cain wasn't, some, wasn't the curse. The curse was that he couldn't work the ground any longer. The mark of Cain was for his preservation. The mark of Cain was God preserving him, 
preserving him from being a part of a cycle of revenge murders that would kill off all mankind. Even here in the hopeless lost story of Genesis 4, God demonstrates that he will act and he will save. He will preserve people on the earth. He will preserve the offspring that will be promised. Humanity will experience a common grace. And so while the effects of total depravity immediately went to murder, there won't be an endless cycle of murders without end. Cain is not praised, nor does he live righteously. But God preserves him and steps in because he has a promise to keep. God is in the business of undoing the curse, freeing man from the slavery of sin. Satan's desire was for there to be division and death. Satan wanted the offspring dead. We know that because he opposes the promise and the promised one. Think of all the times children were killed in the scriptures. In Satan's attempt to stop the promise. In Egypt, being thrown into the Nile. In Bethlehem, soldiers came and killed kids. They killed offspring. Why? Because Satan knew the promise. Satan knew an offspring was going to come to crush him. The sibling rivalry that began in Genesis 4 couldn't end in a complete cycle of death. It needed to be removed and reversed. God needed to preserve mankind. And we see that. Even at the end of chapter 4, we see hope. And Adam, in verse 25, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. There's hope again. For another offspring was given, Seth. And we come to another genealogy in, in Genesis chapter 5, and the story continues. The story now follows Seth's offspring, his genealogy. Who will be the promised seed? How will God fulfill his promise? Sin increases as mankind increases, and we have the flood. We have another judgment. Right? People are wicked all over the world, and God sends a flood to destroy mankind. But he preserves offspring. He preserves Noah. Noah's offspring as well, though, don't follow God's command. And they gather at Babel when God has told them to spread out across the world. And what do they do? They're in opposition to God. They're doing, their, they're doing the very thing that Cain did. They're making up their own way of worship, their own gods. And God sends another judgment. And the judgment is that we now speak many languages across the world. And that division that existed before is now a division given by God. Div division given by God so that we would spread out across the earth, so that he could save us, so that he could preserve offspring. People are more divided, but God is still at work. He will reverse the rivalries. And as we go through the arc of the story of, of Genesis, we know that it starts to be more focused and the focus search for the promise starts to narrow in the story of Abraham as he has a promised son. He has a promised offspring. God promises him an offspring. Imagine how this connects to that Genesis 3.15 promise. 
And then, but it seems impossible, right? It seems impossible that God is going to provide him with offspring because his wife is old. It doesn't happen. But God miraculously brings it through. What else is still present, though, from the beginning of the story? Our sibling rivalries, Isaac and Ishmael. And then we see Jacob and Esau. All the way to the end of the story of Genesis, we find rivalries. And finally, we find it again in the story of the 12 sons of Jacob. And this brings us to our second and final scene from Genesis that we'll look at today. And we'll go to Genesis chapter 44. Most of the time when we come to the end of Genesis, we focus in on Joseph. And it's not bad. Joseph is an amazing story. It's actually, as a kid, it was my favorite story in the Bible. I loved it so much, I wanted a, a younger brother named Joseph. I really wanted a younger brother named Joseph. My, I have two older brothers, Josh and Jason, and then I was James, and it just felt meant to be that I would have a younger brother named Joseph. Uh, but my parents don't have the same issue my wife and I have, and, and I have a younger sister named Jessica. Um, and so we, we're all Jays, um, and, but they got a, they got a girl. Um, and I love having seven boys. It's not a, not, not a, not a real problem. It's not a real issue. It's a, it's a blessing from the Lord. But I love the story of, of Joseph as a kid. Um, and, and in children's Bibles, in Genesis, you're going to find they focus on this story. Um, but in doing so, they often focus so much on Joseph that they miss that there's, there's a story about sibling rivalry going on here that involves an, another very important character. And Joseph, while he is a great hero in the scriptures, one who God is close to, He's not the one who begins the reversal of the rivalries. It's Judah. And the context for Genesis 44 begins in, in Genesis 37 after another genealogy and then points to the, the generations of Joseph. And as we focus on the story, we focus in and we know in Genesis 37, the brothers hated Joseph. Judah, along with his brothers, hated Joseph to the point where they wanted to kill him. And we see Judah plays a part in Genesis 37, and his part is that, oh, he's a businessman. Joseph is worth more alive than dead. Let's sell him off to these slave traders. And so God providentially used slave traders, sent them by to preserve Joseph for a much bigger part of the story. And Judah, along with his brothers, is a slave trader of his own brother. It seems like this might be confirmation that Judah is not part of the line, part of the promised offspring. He, willing to kill his brother, sells him off. The story continues, and actually chapter 38 isn't about Joseph, it's about Judah. It shows even more that he acts just like the godless people of the land, and he sins against his daughter-in-law, Tamar. His oldest two sons are cut off because of sin, and he himself is confronted by Tamar as one who is guilty. What will he do in response? Will he, like Cain, reject God's counsel? In chapter 39, we get more of Joseph's story. He rises to power, and the next time we see Judah is actually in front of Joseph. Brothers squaring off. This time, Joseph in full control puts his brothers to the test. Joseph's brothers go down to Egypt in chapter 42. He calls them spies, sets them up to feel their guilt and test them. 
He puts the money back in their sacks. He tells them if they're to come down again, they have to bring their younger brother, Benjamin. It seems as though Joseph might want to know if they're going to kill, or maybe they already have killed and sold off this younger brother, just like they did to him long ago. The famine God sent continues, and the, the food that they brought back from, uh, from Egypt runs out. They need more food, but Jacob won't let them take Benjamin with them. Judah convinces Jacob to let them go back down. He promises that he will bear the shame if Benjamin does not come back. This brings us to the place where rivalries are dealt with. In Genesis 44, Joseph tests his brothers again. He frames Benjamin. He looks to be a thief. Beginning in verse 12, chapter 44, it says, And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Interestingly enough, the author puts out Judah and his brothers. Judah now in a place of leadership. What is he going to do? Will he continue to deceive as he had before? Will he be true to his word to Jacob? Verse 15, Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servant, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. Judah here affirms what is right, his guilt before God. He recognizes his sinfulness and the results of sin and guilt. Joseph doesn't let it rest here. Are these simply just words? They come from a line of deceivers, deceitful men. Abraham, a liar, lied about his wife being his sister and deceived with it. Isaac, doing the same. Jacob, a very famous deceiver. Joseph says in verse 17, but he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go in peace to your father. Return just like you did when you sold me into slavery. Go back in peace to your father. Make up whatever story you want. Live on your life. Don't worry about it. Now we see repentance in action. Someone finally speaking the truth and willing to act on it. And we see it in Judah. Verse 18, Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring, bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your younger 
youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we can't go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons, as though I didn't have ten others. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Verse 30, Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us then, as his life is bound up in your boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant our father with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy. Verse 33 again, now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. In Judah's speech, we're pointed to the hope of the promise that there's a reversal of the rivalry Judah speaks the truth. He offers to take the blame and the shame to bear the guilt if anything happens to his brother. He who didn't care a thing about his father's sorrow in the case of Joseph now would give himself instead. Even though his father still plays favorites, he's willing to put himself in Benjamin's place. And at this point, what do we know about Benjamin? Like, he actually, Judah, in Judah's mind, Benjamin actually looks guilty. And he's willing to offer himself for someone who is guilty. He offers himself as a substitute. And we know sinful man needs a substitute. Our hope isn't in the good old days, but our hope is in the one that will be promised, the promised seed, the one who will be our substitute. And here we see a picture of God taking evil and making it good. God confronting sin and a repentant sinner. And we see the reversal of rivalry, the sin and the effects of sin. They won't always rule. There is hope. God is at work in humanity. A man is living righteously. He, after being confronted with his sin in Genesis 38, is now repentant. In the story of Joseph, we, we often jump to chapter 45, but we miss what breaks down the barriers between brothers. What reverses the rivalry is a repentant brother. Judah's words to Joseph, his offering of himself in place of Benjamin. And then we see in 45 what happens 
Then Joseph could not control himself. Before all those who stood by him, he cried, Make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now don't be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Brothers are now united. Come near is the call of Joseph. He sees that God is at work, God at work to preserve his people and fulfill his promise. We're quite familiar with Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The story of Genesis gives us hope because it's a picture of God at work, not just cursing sin, not just dividing mankind, but calling sinners to repent. He's reversing the rivalry and he's providing a substitute. Repent. Worship. God's Spirit is transforming rivalries through redemption and repentance. Reconciling man to God. And not only man to God, but man to man. Brother to brother. He will redeem for himself a people. We look at the world and the strife, the sin that is overwhelming, but we're not to be those who are overwhelmed. We are to walk in faithful worship like Abel. We are to repent like Judah. We are to see God's sovereign hand at work like Joseph as he provides a substitute, the substitutionary atonement to remove sin from us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God There is evil in the world. There is war. There is rivalry and selfishness and self-worship and slavery and human human trafficking, and we're not to be a part of those. Total depravity has had its effect since the time of the fall, and it was immediate and harsh. But it will not stop God fulfilling His promise, making all things new. God calls us to repentance. He graciously counsels us to do well, to worship Him rightly. We're called to believe in Christ and turn from sin. He amazingly uses repentant people to reverse rivalries and conflicts. He transforms them into those who give of themselves. If you find yourself on the side of Cain, trusting and serving a God of your own making, the Lord graciously calls you to repent and to run to Him, to live by faith that Christ has defeated death, the very death that Cain brought to Abel. Sins can be forgiven as our substitute, satisfying God's wrath completely has now reconciled man to God. No longer are we rivals with God or man, but we're reconciled in Christ. When you read of rivalries and war, 
human trafficking and slavery, don't lose hope. When you are sinned against and you are persecuted, know that God is not far off. When you feel like losing hope, know that the substitute has come and he is our hope. He has removed sin from us so that we can worship in spirit and truth. Not like Cain and his false worship, not man-centered, self-centered, self-glorifying, self-satisfying worship, but true worship that confesses sin and confesses Christ as Lord. The curse will be lifted. Our hope in heaven is secure. There will be no sin, no rivalry, no murder, no death. The effects of Babel will be reversed, and people from all tribes and tongues will worship the Lion of Judah, the promised seed Christ on the throne. God secures his promise. His word is sure, and we can worship him in faith. He will exchange rivalries for repentance and reconciliation. Think of how the church unites Jew and Gentile. Think of how the Spirit produces fruit of love between brothers and sisters in Christ Think of how it produces joy in all circumstances, peace in a world gone mad, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control so that we're not stuck in a, in a cycle of revenge murders. No longer are we to follow Cain in the way of Cain, just as Jude 11 warns us, woe to them for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Worship that comes from faith, providentially planned and given by God, can glorify Him. We don't need to long for the good old days. We long for the promised return of the Lion of Judah. He will right all wrong, end all rivalry, when the repentant sinners in faith one day will meet their Savior. That is our hope. War will end, strife will cease. This is certain because God fulfills his promise. Because God has provided his son, his offspring, a substitute for us. So we're not stuck being ruled by our own passions, as James 4 says. But we can be those who in Christ, by faith, humble ourselves before God. Even as Judah was humbled. And so we look to our Savior, we look to our Redeemer, we look to our substitute for hope. And we're given a call. We're given a call to follow Him. Repentance at action in our life reverses those rivalries. And so when we're tempted towards strife, when we're tempted towards conflict, we're called to follow our Savior and give of ourselves. And what it produces is beautiful fruit, fruit of the Spirit, fruit of a redeemed, repentant people. Christ has made his own. He's coming for us. That's our hope. Let's pray. (laughs) Lord, thank you. Thank you that we don't have to look to the times before for certainty or long for it. Thank you that you have secured for us a hope in heaven. 
Lord, thank you that you have secured for us reconciliation with God and with others. Thank you that then we can somehow be used for your glory as those who follow Christ and offer of ourselves. Lord, the story is about you. Help us live in light of that. Help us point others to you. God, we thank you. Do your work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand with us and we'll close singing 10,000 Reasons together.
close with a few announcements, short-term missions trip uh, possibilities and, and other opportunities are happening. Uh, we'll continue to pray for Bethany. Uh, she leaves November 8th and will be gone till February 6th. Um, so pick up her support letter out at the missions table. Um, also, the Cambodia team will be sharing today after third service in the NPR. Uh, so you can get a report from their mission trip that's already happened. And then another opportunity coming up is Mexico Homes of Hope out on the plaza. Glenn Perry has had some breakfast burritos out there, so there's some excitement going on. That might be what it is out there. Uh, as well, other excitement out on the plaza next Sunday night, the 12th, is the Praise Gathering, TPG, and it starts at 5 o'clock, dinner, worship, really great fellowship together, and really an evidence that rivalries are reversed right there as we worship rightly together our Savior. Finally, uh, biblical counseling. Um, if, if, you're, if you're needing counsel, we have trained men and women. Um, you can find information out, out about that or inquire about that online. So we, we went back to the beginning in Genesis, and we'll, we'll now go to the end in Revelation 21. And in verse 3, it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus, our hope. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great day. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor with me.